Good evening. The second Senate trial of Donald Trump gets underway. The first debate, can ex-president be impeached? And the $100 billion nuclear missile that nobody needs. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, February 9th, 2021. Senators in Donald Trump's historic second impeachment trial agreed Tuesday to consider the case, rejecting an attempt by the former president's defense team and some Republican allies to halt the trial because he's no longer in office. The vote was 56 to 44 on the question of whether the Senate has jurisdiction and could proceed. House Democrats opened Donald Trump's historic second impeachment trial, showing his former president, showing the former president, whipping up a rally crowd to march on the Capitol and fight like hell against his reelection defeat, followed by graphic video of the deadly attack on Congress that came soon after. But President Biden says he has little interest in the trial. With 450,000 COVID deaths and a tanking economy, he's got bigger fish to fry. Job. My job is to keep people. We've already lost over 450,000 people. We're going to lose a whole lot more if we don't act and act decisively and quickly. A lot of people, as I said, are going. A lot of children are going to bed hungry. A lot of families are food insecure. They're in trouble. That's my job. The Senate has their job. They're about to begin it. I'm sure they're going to conduct themselves well. And uh, that's all I'm going to have to say about impeachment. Thank you, Mayor. President Joe Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says expect new damning evidence of Trump's role in the bloody invasion of the United States Capitol on January 6th. The evidence will be powerful. The evidence, some of it will be new. And I urge all my colleagues to pay careful attention to the evidence. I particularly urge my Republican colleagues, despite the pressure on them, to pay very real attention to the evidence here, because it's very, very serious. Every senator, Democrat and Republican, has to approach this trial with the gravity it deserves. A mob of white supremacists and insurrectionists and domestic terrorists falsely believed the election was stolen and tried to overthrow the government. And as I said, the trial is about with the, with the president, whether the president, the man chiefly responsible for feeding the mob with the lies that motivated their behavior, who told them to come to D.C., directed them at the Capitol, is guilty of inciting the violence. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Meanwhile, House Democrats opened the... Uh, rally the trial on Tuesday, showing the former president whipping up the rally crowd to march on the Capitol, followed by graphic video of the deadly attack on Congress that followed. Here are some excerpts from the video that was shown today. We will stop the steal. Today, I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election and we won it by a landslide. This was not a close election. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. They came in and 
the Vice President and the United States Senate. The Constitution says you have to protect our country and you have to protect our Constitution. And you can't vote on fraud. And fraud breaks up everything, doesn't it? When you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to go by very different rules. So I hope Mike has the courage to do what he has to do. Fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol. And we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help, we're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. And it will stay in a recess until the call of the chair. We'll pause. Protesters are in the building. Thank you. Mr. Speaker, can I have order in the chamber? The House will be in order. The House will be in order. Okay. Senators sitting as jurors, many who themselves fled for safety that day, watched the jarring video of the Trump supporters battling past police to storm the halls. Trump flags waving. Nearly 200 of them have been arrested for a variety of crimes linked to the invasion. The lead impeachment manager for the House of Representatives is Jamie Raskin. We'll hear a little bit more from him later. Basically, at the beginning, he told senators the case would present cold, hard facts against Trump, who's charged with inciting the mob siege of the Capitol to overturn the election. Raskin added in his opening marks, that's a high crime and misdemeanor. If that's not an impeachable offense, then there's no such thing. Democratic Representative David Cicciolini of Rhode Island explained why he says Trump's lawyers have it wrong when they say a former president can't be impeached. President Trump was impeached while he was in office for conduct in office, period. The alternative, once again, is this January exception, in which our most powerful officials can commit the most terrible abuses and then resign to leave office and suddenly claim that they're just a private citizen who can't be held accountable at all. In the same vein, President Trump and his lawyers argue that he shouldn't be impeached because it will set a bad precedent for impeaching others. But that slippery slope argument is also incorrect. For centuries, the prevailing view has been that former officials are subject to impeachment. The House has repeatedly acknowledged that fact. But in the vast majority of cases, the House has rightly recognized that an official's resignation or departure makes the extraordinary step of impeachment unnecessary and maybe even unwise. His threat to democracy makes any prior abuse by any government official pale in comparison. Moreover, allowing his conduct to pass without the most decisive response would itself 
create an extraordinary danger to the nation. Inviting further abuse of power and signaling that the Congress of the United States is unable or unwilling to respond to insurrection incited by the president. President Trump and his lawyers may argue today that he should get a free pass on inciting an armed insurrection against the United States government and endangering Congress because, as he would put it, this impeachment is somehow unconstitutional. So far as I understand it from reading the pleadings in this case, this defense involves cobbling together a bunch of meritless legal arguments all of them attempting to focus on substance rather than jurisdiction and insisting that these kitchen sink objections lead the Senate to not try the case. He may argue, for example, that he didn't receive enough process in the House, even though the House proceedings are more like a grand jury action, which is followed later by trial in the Senate with a full presentation of evidence. Even though the evidence of his high crimes and misdemeanors is overwhelming, and supported by a huge public record. Even though we're going to put that evidence before you at this trial, and even though we'll have a full and fair opportunity to respond to it before all of you, even though hundreds of others involved in the events of January 6th have already been charged for their role in attacks uh, that the president incited, and even though we invited him to voluntarily come here and testify and tell his story, a request, as you know, that his lawyers immediately refused, presumably because they understood what would happen if he were to testify under oath. Democratic Representative David Cicilline of Rhode Island. But Trump lawyer Bruce Castor says Democrats should be careful since turnabout is fair play. When the pendulum swings, perhaps the next person that gets impeached and is sent here for you to consider is Eric Holder during Fast and Furious, the Attorney General of the United States, or any other person that the, the other party considers to be a political danger to them down the road because of their avowed abilities and, and being articulate and having a resume that, with that, that shows that they're capable. I picked uh, Eric simply because I think, I think he has a a tremendous, he's had a tremendous career, and he might be somebody that some Republican somewhere might be worried about. So maybe the next person they go after is Eric Holder. And, you know, the Republicans might regain the House in two years. History does tend to suggest that the party out of power in the White House does well in the midterm elections, and certainly the, the, the uh, 2020 elections uh, the House gained, uh, the, the House majority narrowed, and there was a gain of Republicans. The honorable gentleman from Nebraska, Mr. Sass, I saw that he faced backlash back home because of a vote he made some uh, weeks ago that a political party was complaining about a decision he made as a United States senator. You know, it's interesting because I don't want to steal the thunder from the other lawyers, but Nebraska, you're going to hear, is quite a judicial thinking place. And just maybe Senator Sass is on to something. You'll hear about what it is that the Nebraska courts have to say about the issue that you all are deciding this week. 
They seem to be some pretty smart jurists in Nebraska, and I can't believe a United States senator doesn't know that. A senator like the gentleman from Nebraska whose Supreme Court history is ever-present in his mind, and rightfully so, he, he faces the whirlwind even though he knows what the judiciary in his state thinks. People back home will demand their House members continue the cycle as political fortunes rise and fall. The only entity that stands between the bitter infighting that led to the downfall of the Greek Republic and the Roman Republic and the American Republic is the Senate of the United States. Shall the business of the Senate, and thus the nation, come to a halt, not just for the current weeks while a new president is trying to fill out his administration, but shall the business of the Senate and the nation come to a halt because impeachment becomes the rule rather than the rare exception? Trump lawyer Bruce Castor and Representative Jamie Raskin recounted a personal story of January 6th. It was a day after his family had buried his son, 25-year-old Tommy Raskin, who had taken his own life on New Year's Eve after battling depression. Raskin brought his daughter and her new husband to see democracy in action to uplift them. And still, they survived a day of terror where their lives were in constant danger. Distinguished members of the Senate, my youngest daughter, Tabitha, was there with me on Wednesday, January 6th. The reason they came with me that Wednesday, January 6th, was because they wanted to be together with me in the middle of a devastating week for our family. And I told them I had to go back to work because we were counting electoral votes that day on January 6th. It was our constitutional duty. And I invited them instead to come with me to witness this historic event, the peaceful transfer of power in America. And they said they heard that President Trump was calling on his followers to come to Washington to protest, and they asked me directly, would it be safe? Would it be safe? And I told them, of course it should be safe. This is the Capitol. And through the tears, I was working on a speech for the floor when we would all be together in joint session. And I wanted to focus on unity when we met in the House. And Tabitha and Hank came with me to the floor, and they watched it from the gallery. And it was, when it was over, they went back to that office, Stenny's office, off of the House floor. They didn't know that the House had been breached yet, and that an insurrection, a riot, or a coup had come to Congress. And by the time we learned about it, about what was going on, it was too late. I couldn't get out there to be with them in that office. And all around me, people were calling their wives and their husbands, their loved ones, to say goodbye. Members of Congress, in the House anyway, were removing their congressional pins so they wouldn't be identified by the mob as they tried to escape the violence. 
Our new chaplain got up and said a prayer for us, and we were told to put our gas masks on. And then there was a sound I will never forget, the sound of pounding on the door like a battering ram. The most haunting sound I ever heard, and I will never forget it. My chief of staff, Julie Tagan, was with Tabitha and Hank locked and barricaded in that office. The kids hiding under the desk, placing what they thought were their final texts and whispered phone calls to say their goodbyes. They thought they were going to die. My son-in-law had never even been to the Capitol before. And when they were finally rescued over an hour later by Capitol officers, and we were together, I hugged them, and I apologized, and I told my daughter, Tabitha, who's 24, and a brilliant algebra teacher in Teach for America. Now, I told her how sorry I was, and I promised her that it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. <laughs> Jamie Raskin of Maryland is the lead impeachment manager for the House of Representatives. In related news, a man who authorities say is a leader of the far-right Oath Keeper militia group and helped to organize a ring of other extremists and led them in the invasion of the United States Capitol has held a top-secret security clearance for decades and previously worked for the FBI. Thomas Caldwell, who authorities believe holds a leadership role in the extremist group, worked as a section chief for the FBI from 2009 to 2010 after retiring from the Navy. That's according to his lawyer. The defense said Caldwell, who's denied being part of the Oath Keepers, has held a top-secret security clearance since 1979, which required multiple special background investigations. Caldwell is one of three people authorities have described as Oath Keepers who were charged last month with conspiracy and accused of plotting the attack on the Capitol in advance. He's been locked up since his arrest at his home in Berryville, Virginia, on January 19th. Caldwell is among roughly 200 people charged so far in the siege for federal crimes such as disrupting Congress, disorderly conduct and assault. A special group of prosecutors is weighing whether to bring sedition charges. Several members of the Proud Boys, a far-right male chauvinist extremist group that seized on the Trump administration policies, have also been charged with conspiracy and accused of working together during the siege. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. America is building a new weapon of mass destruction, a nuclear missile the length of a bowling lane. It'll be able to travel some 6,000 miles, carrying a warhead more than 20 times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. It will be able to kill hundreds of thousands of people in a single shot. The U.S. Air Force plans to order more than 600 of them. The government will spend roughly $100 billion to build the weapon, which will be ready for use around 2029. The author of an article in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist titled, Why is America Getting a New $100 Billion Nuclear Weapon? It's about how this unnamed missile, other nuclear uh, armed missiles have had prosaic names like Peacekeeper, Atlas, and Titan, how the nuclear economy seductive way to make money in communities where jobs are hard to come by. This is an interesting weapon because it's really strategically dubious that high, high level military thinkers, generals and admirals think is strategically dubious. And the reason it's so dubious is 
one of its explicit purposes is to draw fire to the regions where it is based. It's a land-based nuclear missile, which means it's sitting in fixed silos in these five states, Wyoming, Montana, North Dakota, Nebraska, and Colorado. They're kind of sitting ducks. Russia knows where they are, like kind of the point is almost to know where they are. The idea is that in the event of a nuclear war, the fact that these are all sitting there would mean that Russia would have to use up a lot of nuclear firepower to get rid of them before doing other stuff. Defense strategists use the term the nuclear sponge because they're supposed to absorb up incoming nuclear fire, which obviously isn't very reassuring to some of the people who live in these states. There's only one country in the world that has anywhere near the nuclear force of the United States that would be the source of the weapons that the U.S. wants to suck up like a sponge, and that's Russia as well, right? People who favor a lot of nuclear spending like to point out, oh, well, China is building up its nuclear arsenal. That is true, but China has currently has about 300 nuclear warheads, and if they double that, which the Pentagon thinks they're probably going to do, they'll have 600 compared to the U.S. and Russia, which have close to 4,000 each. So we're still talking really only two giant nuclear powers. So you can mm-hmm. have a situation where a relatively undeveloped country has a nuclear power equal to the most developed country. If you look at plenty of U.S. national security analyses, China is generally considered the bigger, longer-term threat or concern, much more than Russia. And China's putting the smart money on cyber weapons and other ultra-modern weapons, much more than nuclear. This future modernized nuclear world that the United States is constructing to defend itself against a country that's not a direct threat. It's hugely about the economics of it and jobs, too. There's people who think we need nuclear weapons or some kind of nuclear deterrent who think we can still get rid of the land-based missiles and still have air and sea missiles, which are kind of stealthier and more useful in some ways. In cities like Great Falls or Cheyenne, nuclear missile bases are important economic engines. Like Malmstrom Air Force Base, uh, which is in Great Falls, Montana, is one of the biggest employers in the area, one of the larger employers in the state. I talked to chambers of commerce in these cities, and they're literally excited to get these contracts to do this modernization. There's something called the Missile Caucus in U.S. Congress of essentially the congressional delegations from these states. They will fight tooth and nail to keep these land-based missiles because they're an important part of the economy. Utah, too, because Utah is where this one's going to be built. The defense companies themselves, they lobby, just like all other industries lobby in the U.S. So there's some money flowing from them to the politicians as well. If you had some kind of reliable national health care that people could have confidence in getting, if people had a sense of having a social safety net, maybe we wouldn't get so reliant on these things like prisons and weapons to be our source of jobs and our source of economic safety. And there's also the the false alarm danger, which is pretty serious because U.S. policy is to have the launch on warning policy. You're supposed to launch them if you get any warning of incoming fire. There have been false alarms that there is incoming fire. So you could accidentally start 
a nuclear war that way. Probably one of the bigger concerns now is cyber hacking of the nuclear command and control complex. And there have been investigations into this and attempts to improve it. And this particularly pertains to the land-based missiles. Like it's actually much harder to hack a nuclear submarine than it is to hack a land-based nuclear missiles. And Elizabeth Eves is the author of Why is America Getting a New $100 Billion Nuclear Weapon? It's in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. And finally, in one of his first acts as new chairman of the Senate Energy Committee, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia urged President Joe Biden to reconsider his executive order revoking a presidential permit for the Keystone XL oil pipeline, siding with Republican critics who say Biden's action will cost high-paying jobs. Manchin of West Virginia has yet to lead a hearing since being named chair last week, but he spoke out on the pipeline controversy that spanned four presidencies. In a letter to Biden, Manchin said Keystone XL and other pipelines, quote, continue to be the safest mode to transport our oil and natural grass resources, and they support thousands of high-paying American union jobs. Manchin, a longtime coal industry defender, once shot a copy of a climate change bill for a campaign ad. Breaking with his party, Manchin questioned Biden Biden's action to rejoin the global Paris Climate Agreement, in which more than 100 company, com- countries have pledged to achieve net zero carbon emissions by the end of the century. Manchin, uh, and that's, pardon me, and that's some of the news for Tuesday, February 9th. 2019. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City for the WBAI News. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.